Throughout this episode, you'll hear occasional dynamically placed advertisements as well as host-read ads by me promoting the work of my sponsors, similar to what you'd experience when you're binging your favorite YouTube content. If you find the ads disruptive, consider joining my community on Patreon. Premium submarines receive full-length ad-free episodes, hundreds of hours of bonus content, and the ability to connect and chat with other listeners. To learn more, visit patreon.com slash backfromtheborderline. Hi Molly, this is Asya. I'm calling from Amsterdam in Europe and I'm one of your premium submarines. I just wanted to call in because I've always heard other people call in and always thought, oh, I should really do that because you've made such a big impact on my life. Um, just as I was diagnosed, I found your podcast, which at, the point, at that point had maybe three episodes. Um, so I feel you and I have been making a parallel recovery, which has been extremely empowering to me. So really thank you for putting this content out there. And also what you're saying that we don't have BPD, we just have complex trauma that really hit home. So I thought, I'm not sick. I don't need to be medicated. I need healing and holding. And that's luckily what I'm getting in therapy. So thank you for putting it all out there and giving us hope and encouragement and also last week's episodes or this week's episodes uh, this lady who thinks that borderlines are like vampires and uh, we can make people borderline by proxy um, you had me laughing out loud on my bicycle in Amsterdam because I always listen to your podcast while I'm cycling through town um, it was hilarious uh, thank you for that Hey Molly, uh, my name is Marina. I am 25 and I live in Tampa, Florida. Uh, first of all, thank you so fucking much for making this podcast. You have no idea how helpful it's been to me in my recovery journey. Like, oh my God. Yeah, well, thank you. Uh, and second of all, I just wondered how the fuck do you prevent and get out of limerence? I just am at a point in my life where all I want is like a healthy relationship that's realistic, I guess. And It seems like every guy I'm involved with, I just become obsessed with them. Or it's like, I don't even know if I'm really feeling that love. It's just this obsession, this high, it's like a fucking drug. Um, so I would, I know you've been with his ads for a minute. So I just would really uh, like some advice about how to get out of limerence or just prevent it in the first place. So yeah, again, love the podcast. Thanks. Hi Molly. My name is Matilda and I'm 23. I live in Germany and I really wanted to thank you for your podcast. I really love it and it's really helping me a lot. I especially connected to your recent episode about Janet McCurdy's book and I recognized so many things from my own childhood, sadly. Um, I grew up with a really severely traumatized mother who was diagnosed with multiple personality disorder when I was about four years old. That's when she started therapy, which I think was really helpful and really um, made my life a lot better. At least she was in therapy, but I was still uh, parentified a lot. And you talked about a lot of the consequences, and I definitely see them in my life. But it's really frustrating to recognize all these consequences and to feel really stuck about not being able to change them, even though... I'm in therapy and I'm working on myself uh, about like since 10 years maybe, I don't know. And like these inner beliefs are just not going away. So I was just thinking maybe you could talk about it more in depth 
but I know I'm always seeking for instructions and I guess everyone has to find their own way, but it's really hard and I feel like I'm not um, going in the right direction or not anywhere and being stuck. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. I would like to thank Aja, Marina, and Matilda for your lovely voicemails. If you would like to hear your voice on the podcast and to share your thoughts, ask a question, you can do that by visiting backfromtheborderline.com and clicking the microphone icon at the bottom of the screen. I have to say, Asha, I laughed so hard at your voicemail because my premium subscribers will know that I have been experimenting with different names for them. So one of the times I said, hello, my premium submarines, and it might be my favorite. So Asha, you maybe just made premium submarines stick. Um, so thanks for making me chuckle on that. I love that you said that you've listened since episode three and it feels like we've been on this recovery journey together That's exactly why I wanted to create this podcast, is to make it so that you don't feel alone. And we're all in this together. So many of us have the same experiences, the same feelings, the same struggles. And just knowing that you're not alone in that and you're not broken, disordered, or crazy, and that it's possible to change can be everything we need. So thank you for validating that the podcast is achieving that because I'm not perfect. I'm by no means an expert. I'm just a fellow seeker. I'm a fellow person on this journey who picked up a microphone and is so passionate about wanting to connect all of us together and also to carve a new path forward in the discourse surrounding mental health and harmful and stigmatized labels. Marina, your voicemail too, talking about how to get out of limerence. So many of you have given me feedback about this limerence episode. For those of you who haven't listened to it, I did a deep dive for my premium subscribers on limerence, and limerence is defined as a mental state of profound romantic infatuation, deep obsession, and fantastical longing. You may have heard the concept of the BPD favorite person thrown around in the BPD community. I'm convinced that the FP or BPD favorite person is the same thing as limerence. And limerence is something that has existed for a long time. And I think the BPD favorite person is just limerence repackaged. When we are feeling limerent about someone, the idea is, is that we often convince ourselves that if we're in limerence, that we're in love, but limerence is not love. Limerence means when we're obsessed with someone, intrusive and voluntary thinking about another person that takes up our whole day, our real life becomes deprioritized and we center a relationship maybe even with someone we barely even really know if we think about it we center that in our entire life and everything else falls by the wayside you feel 
like your entire emotional stability is dependent on them. If they don't text us back, if they reject us, it's like everything that we are and our entire self-narrative completely falls apart. We're seeking validation from them desperately and it is not love. It is limerence. And simply becoming aware of that is a really powerful realization. However, as Marina so fantastically describes here, is even being aware of it isn't really enough often to stop the cycle and stop us continually wrapping our identity and our entire emotional stability around other people and mistaking limerence for love and obsession and rumination for love, wrapping our entire identity around a human being so much so that if they decide they no longer want to be with us, sometimes we're so upset that we may not even want to live anymore. And I describe in this episode that I did on limerence that I'm convinced that we can be limerent about places too and things. We become maybe obsessed with dyeing our hair or changing our entire wardrobe or moving to a new city and thinking, if I change my career, if I change my friend group, if I change my hair, my body, what I wear, that then then everything will be better and we romanticize it we obsess about it and we're becoming limerent about it instead of making a grounded decision and really thinking things through and then we have the voicemail from matilda who talks about how powerfully my episode impacted her the one where i did a review on jeanette mccurdy's book I'm glad my mom died. And hearing, Matilda, how much you related to that, I'm so sorry that was your experience growing up. I can't even imagine what that must have been like for you, having a parent who is struggling with schizophrenia or psychotic episodes. You described that your mom is in therapy now. Maybe things are moving forward, you've been in therapy for more than 10 years, but you keep repeating that you feel stuck. And you just saying that these inner beliefs just aren't going away. You feel like you're not going anywhere and repeating this word stuck. And as I was listening to your voicemails, what was I overcome with? It's this sense of struggling for our identity, number one. And for those of us who identify with BPD traits, whether we've been formally diagnosed or not, we struggle deeply with this concept of identity in various different ways. Sometimes we're trying to wrap our identity around another person. Sometimes We can't find who we are outside of trauma that has been enacted upon us. Like in Matilda's case, with a really abusive, maybe neglectful, enmeshed upbringing. And we feel like we're stuck. We're overly identified with what happened to us or another person and who we want to be. Identity. 
Who am I? What do I believe in? We're so caught up on identity these days. So much so is an importance put on identity that it's even a symptom of BPD. Identity disturbance. I'm sure you've read about this. I'm going to read you a little bit about how identity disturbance is pathologized in BPD. This is some text from some behavioral hospital's webpage somewhere in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I could read from any webpage because they all say very similar things about BPD and identity disturbance. It says, Identity disturbance is a phrase used to describe a loss of your sense of self. It is a key characteristic of borderline personality disorder, and it can be troubling as a symptom for those experiencing it. But don't worry, finding treatment for your BPD can help you build a strong sense of identity and help you overcome the painful nature of identity disturbance. What is identity disturbance? Your beliefs, values, feelings, and behaviors all make pieces of your identity. Therefore, identity disturbances are characterized by dramatic shifts in these behaviors and rapidly changing beliefs. Common symptoms of identity disturbance are no concrete sense of self, a self-image that changes often, or a lack of identity altogether. The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, DSM-5, lists identity disturbance as one of the nine criteria for BPD. It describes it as having the following characteristics, shifting goals, sudden changes in opinion, frequent career shifts, fluctuating sexual or gender identity, regularly changing friend groups. Incidentally, identity disturbances can occur outside of BPD as well. In fact, it's seen in about half of other personality disorders. However, treatment for identity disorders can help. When you have BPD, identity issues can disrupt several aspects of your life. For example, constantly switching your career goals can result in never settling into a job and developing a routine. In addition, changes in your values can make it difficult to keep long-term relationships. Of course, this may also happen in reverse. Not being able to build long-term relationships or daily routines may disrupt your sense of self. In this way, your self-image becomes unstable because of constantly changing circumstances and friend groups and never developing a sense of self. Whichever comes first, people experiencing an identity disturbance often feel empty inside. Therefore, they try to fit in with diverse crowds, adopt different romantic partners, they act as a chameleon, but they feel no continuity in their moods and behaviors over time. This can ultimately confirm the lack of identity or sense of self. So, there are lots and lots of articles, podcast episodes, and content in general in the land that I call BPD123, and they all say some of the same shit as what I just read. What if we were looking at this in entirely the wrong way? What if this constant pursuit of a sense of self was not even a goal that anyone should be achieving in the first place? What if pursuing no self as having no sense of self 
is actually the missing piece in your recovery journey right now. That is exactly what I'm going to argue in this episode. I see so many people who have been diagnosed with BPD or identify with the traits all over the internet, in my emails, in my voicemails, on Reddit, wherever that may be, struggling so deeply saying that they can't find a sense of self, that they don't have an identity. And we will now discover in this episode, and by the very end of it, I promise that you will see that this endless and obsessive pursuit with trying to find an identity is likely something that's keeping you stuck. And I also argue that Western thought and Western forms of therapy and therapists that are trying to help us develop a sense of self and placing a huge amount of emphasis on it are actually missing the point. And it's no surprise that this style or this focus in therapy is going to leave people with BPD feeling stuck. It is not going to help. So today, I'm going to, instead of helping you find a sense of identity, I am going to help you find a sense of no self. You might be thinking, what in the fuck are you talking about, Molly? That's fine. By the end of the episode, you will understand. And before we dive into what the concept of no self is and how I think it is the missing piece for you in your journey and it will solve the pain you feel around this symptom that is referred to as identity disturbance, I'm going to play for you two other voicemails from listeners who have questions that I think will also be solved by the concept of no self. Listen in these voicemails and you'll understand why I've chosen to play them in this episode all about identity disturbance. Hi Molly, my name is Catherine. I'm from San Francisco, California. I am 24 years old. Um, There's actually a subject I've been dying to hear you cover, um, imposter syndrome. I hear it everywhere. Um, I've had my fiance tell me that, you know, based off of everything he's seen, he thinks we both suffer from it. And I just don't always trust what I read online and I trust it coming from you better. So, um, if you could cover that on one of your episodes, I would really greatly appreciate it. I love you so much. Keep up the fucking superpower work you're doing. Hey Molly, my name is Madison. I am 22 years old and I live in Canada. I'm calling in to ask a couple questions. My first question is, do you ever experience envy and how exactly do you deal with your envy? Um, And then the second question is, how do you know the difference between something that you truly want compared to something that you want to do just to impress others, like hobbies, etc. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Thank you to Madison and Kat. Now, Kat, asked about something called imposter syndrome. And if you're not familiar with imposter syndrome, it's feeling like a fraud. It is believing that you're not as competent as other people perceive you to be because you're somehow faking it. How maybe everything that you've achieved and succeeded in life was just due 
to luck. Imposter syndrome for me feels like I just recorded an amazing podcast episode, but I don't think I can ever replicate that again. It was just luck. But real view of the situation is I've worked hard at this. I'm talented. I do a lot of research and it is a mixture of my talent, dedication, and preparation, and I know I can keep doing this again, and I deserve the success from this podcast that I achieve. But imposter syndrome makes us feel like we're a fraud. It makes me feel like when I'm listening to other podcasts that somehow I'm not as good as other podcasters, and I'm different from them. And I'm sure you can feel that same way. I have close friends who are artists, and they feel like they did an amazing piece of art and they can never do that again. And it terrifies them because they feel like they're a fraud, like they can't go back and replicate that same type of success. And I played Kat's voicemail here because I could go and answer all of the questions that I receive on this podcast and say, I'm gonna do an entire episode about overcoming this feeling of feeling stuck that Madison talks about overcoming limerence, which is feeling obsessed with other people and wrapping our entire identity around other people. But imposter syndrome, this feeling stuck, all of these things tie into one thing, and that is identity, our struggle to find a sense of self. And not only that, being focused on ourselves so much. And that's what I hear in these questions. And then we have Madison's question, do you ever experience envy? And how do you know the difference between something that you genuinely want and something that you want to do to impress other people or get validation? Another question I get all the time is, how do I know if what I'm thinking or what I want, if it's me or the BPD? I believe that instead of doing an episode to address each and every one of these topics, sometimes the core of the issue can address all of the questions. And for every single one of these listeners who called into the podcast, I believe I can help each and every one of you and any of you who identify with anything that these listeners have shared with the concept of no self. I don't believe that any of us need to struggle so hard to find a sense of identity. I believe that we need to zoom out and depersonalize and find a way of a no self rather than being so caught up in who we are, validation, wrapping our identity around in others. On last week's episode, we talked about cognitive distortions and also I gave you some homework. So if you're returning from last week, I really hope you did your homework. And that was to jot down all of the negative feelings that come up for you and the thought spirals that come after them. And all of this ties together because our thoughts become things. And many of our thought spirals, if we're honest with ourselves, are all about this constant search for who we are. And it becomes obsessive. And it starts to hold us back. And I can hear this same thread 
in all of these voicemails that you've submitted. And it's such a human thing. I think everyone on earth could probably benefit from the concepts I'm about to share today because I want you to understand that if you've been diagnosed with BPD or if you identify with the traits, I think everyone is overly obsessed with identity and their sense of self and they could benefit from the concept of no self. So at this point, you are really wondering what the hell is the fiction of the self? What is the no self concept and how can it help you? Let's get into that now. I found an article this week that blew my mind and inspired this episode. And I'm going to read it and then we're going to reflect on it together. I will provide some reflections of my own as we go through it. And it is by a psychotherapist named Ronald Siegel. I will link to the full article in the episode description. It's called The Fiction of the Self, The Paradox of Mindfulness and Clinical Practice. And I am of the belief that when the student is ready, the teacher appears. It's one of my favorite phrases. And if you're a long-term listener of the podcast, this will not be the first time you've heard me say it or the second or third time. And in my journey, the right resources have just fallen into my lap at the right time. And it is my belief that I am just following my intuitive guidance to share these resources with you, my listener, because I believe that it's time for you to hear them too. And this random article came up when I was researching identity and it encapsulated so much of what I found in my obsessive search for a sense of self. When I tell you I have rebranded myself when it comes to my identity, the way I look, the places I've lived, I've moved cities more times than you could ever imagine. I have moved countries. I have been married and divorced. I have been in multiple relationships. I have changed friend groups. And I have been on a deep and profound spiritual search as well over the last couple of years. And so if anyone understands the deep pain of the symptom of identity disturbance, trust that I understand the pain. But this article articulates so much of what I've found in my own search. And as I disidentify from my search from identity, detach myself rather, the healthier and more grounded I feel. So let's dive into this article by Ronald Siegel. And I hope that he can become one of your teachers in your journey as he's become one of mine. The article begins by saying, what if our therapeutic goals of improving self-esteem, developing a stable and coherent sense of self, and identifying and expressing genuine, authentic feelings all turned out to be symptoms of delusion? And what if the current mindfulness craze, if we take it seriously enough, changes who we think we are and what we're even trying to do in therapy. I love that he opens up with this because if you really think about it, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, so many end goals of therapy in the Western world 
are completely focused on self-esteem, developing a coherent sense of self, identifying our feelings and our needs. And what he's arguing in this article is that the very goals of traditional therapy right now are contributing to further psychological distress and delusion. And so he's arguing in this article for a completely different goal. So he goes on to say, like atomic energy in the 1960s, mindfulness is lately being seen as the cure for everything. Depression, anxiety, alienation, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, financial difficulties, you name it, and there is a mindfulness-based remedy for it. And while it's true that reducing stress and giving us respite from our incessant thoughts can make almost any condition feel better, serious engagement with mindfulness practice is likely to produce an unexpected, often unwanted effect. It can lead us and our clients away from our comfortable constructs and toward a radical reappraisal of who we are and what our life is all about, completely upending our psychotherapy practices in the process. In the Buddhist traditions from which many contemporary mindfulness practices derive, mindfulness techniques evolved as tools for deconstructing our usual view of ourselves and the world, for waking up from conventional, socially reinforced fictions about who we are and how to find happiness. This awakening occurs to the degree that we no longer believe in the self. It involves realizing what's called in Pali, the language in which the Buddha's teaching were very first recorded, anatta, or non-self. Now, we discussed in a previous episode all about the concept of anatta, but I just touched on the surface, and now we're really going to be diving into it. What I find interesting is that in Eastern practices, particularly Buddhism, is that the focus of emotional well-being in Buddhism is disidentifying from the self and the identity. But here in the West, we're very focused on developing a sense of identity. America, for example, is very focused around individualism. In the East, in many Eastern areas of the world, it is a less individualistic point of view and more of a collectivist point of view. The goal of enlightenment is actually disidentifying from the self. And that's what we're going to continue talking about in the article. So he goes on to write, the mindfulness practice that leads to recognizing anatta or no self is deceptively simple. It begins with cultivating concentration, choosing an object of awareness, such as ambient sounds, the breath, or other body sensations, and returning attention to that object every time the mind wanders from it. Once some concentration is established, we open the field of awareness to attend to whatever predominates in consciousness. Throughout the process, we try to accept whatever arises, whether pleasant or unpleasant. So if you've ever done a mindfulness meditation, you're familiar with what he's talking about here in this article. 
you do anything, if you use, I don't know, Headspace or any of these really popular meditation apps, you'll have likely done a meditation and maybe been super annoyed with it and felt like you fucked it up and you couldn't do this meditation thing. But it continues to remind you to, if your thoughts wander, to return your focus on the breath. And I struggled for a long time with meditation or mindfulness because if you just dive into a headspace meditation, if you're anything like me, you struggle to find the benefit in something unless you dive under the hood and learn more about it in a deeper, more profound way. And I think after we finish this episode together today, you may find yourself, if you've struggled with meditation before, you may find yourself wanting to give it a try again. So the author goes on to write, if we engage in this simple practice long enough, he means the practice of sitting there and focusing on the breath, and if our thoughts wander, to just let it pass, disidentify from the thoughts, return to the breath. The longer we engage in this simple practice, we discover that our sense of being a separate, coherent, enduring self is actually a delusion maintained by our constant inner chatter, which generally features a me at its center. From the mundane decisions like, I think I'll get salmon with spinach tonight, to the more existential fears. What do I do if this lump in my neck is a tumor and I have cancer? This mindless, incessant, non-stop chatter fills every moment of our waking hours. We're listening to it all day long, and we come to believe that the hero of this drama must exist, the me. But if we practice mindfulness long and often enough, this conventional sense of self can start to unravel. By repeatedly bringing our attention to sensory experience in the present moment, we see that what arises in consciousness is a kaleidoscope of sensations and images, regularly narrated by subvocal words which themselves arise and pass. Attention goes from the sensations of breathing, to a sound, to an itch on our head, to an image of a client we need to call back, to remembering an upsetting email we got earlier in the day, we never actually find the homonucleus, the heroic man, woman, or person inside of us, this stable and coherent I or me, so regularly mentioned in our passing thoughts. Rather, there's just a continual flux of changing mental contents. If we cultivate sufficient mindfulness, we may even see how we create our sense of self and our understanding of the world around us out of this constant flux of feelings, motions, and thoughts. Seeing this in action can actually pull the rug out from under us in alarming and though potentially liberating ways. Have you ever tried to sit down and meditate? I just want to elaborate a little bit on what he's saying because he's describing it in quite an academic way but I'd like to talk about it in my Molly way 
when you sit there and meditate, you realize how thoughts just randomly pop into your head and you're so easily distracted by a sound and then you're thinking about an email and then you're thinking about what you're going to wear later and then you think about lunch and then you think, oh shit, I need to focus back on this meditation and then you're quiet for a second and then boom, another thought comes up and it is in those moments, even when your meditation is what you might think as a failure, I've realized now with more work, no time that you sit down and meditate is ever a failure because even if you just realize you are a monkey mind as they call it in Buddhism, which is just this mind that's going all over the place, you realize that so many of these thoughts are so unconscious and they just pop up and then you start thinking, who is the one observing myself having these thoughts? Who am I really? It all gets pretty existential. So the next piece of his article goes into talking about how we actually construct our reality. He writes, ancient Buddhists describe the process by which we construct reality and our sense of self much as modern cognitive scientists do. It all begins with sense contact, the coming together of a sense organ, the eye or our ear, for example, with an object of awareness. These sensations are then immediately organized into perceptions conditioned by language, personal history, and culture. So what he's saying here is bringing an awareness to all the different filters things go through in our lives. Something that we hear, we don't hear it just for the words that they are. We may hear the same sentence as someone else and they may interpret it in a completely different way because we're all conditioned by the language we speak. If I say something to someone who doesn't speak English, they're just going to hear jarbled sounds. I might say the very same thing to someone who speaks English and is was raised in a different personal history and culture and they will ter- interpret it in a different way to the next person who speaks the same language. It's all through these different filters. So he goes on to say the mind doesn't stay at the level of perception for long. It immediately adds a hedonic or feeling tone to all experience. In other words, we hear something or see something and we decide, quote, I don't like this or I like this. We hear, see, feel something and we, the hedonic tone he's mentioning is where we put a label on it of good or bad. I like it or I don't like it. And almost as soon as the feeling tone enters consciousness, intentions arise. We have an impulse to hold on to pleasant experiences and push away unpleasant experiences. Over time, we develop habits of intention that we might call dispositions or conditioned responses, collections of habitual responses to our likes and dislikes these dispositions become important elements of our identity. For example, I'm a liberal, or I listen to classical music, or I hate skiing, I'm into meditation, I love crystals, and so on and so forth. Most of us don't fully appreciate the degree to which what we think of as our personality and sense of self is actually just a collection of these likes 
dislikes and intentions solidified over time. We see the process most clearly in teenagers. They're always busy defining themselves by the kind of music they enjoy or whether they like academics, sports, or art. This part of the article really stopped me in my tracks because it made me think of how relevant it is for all of us listening to this podcast and also how I think those of us who are stuck in trauma, whether that be BPD or CPTSD or any other kind of mental health ailment that contributes to this symptom of identity disturbance, it's almost like we're perpetual teenagers. If you really think about it, I feel like I was stuck in teenager mode for so long because only immature teenagers are obsessed with really defining themselves by like the music they listen to or the clothes they wear. Typically, teenagers grow out of that. And I definitely was stuck in that teenager mentality for a really long time. And I ask you to take an honest look at yourself. Are you stuck in this teenage view of personality and sense of self as being defined by the kind of person you date? Are you obsessed with a certain kind of aesthetic or clothes style or a music style? Or maybe you see other people having that and you're convinced that you need to have that too and you don't you feel like you don't have it so you feel like that's what having a sense of self is like and that's a goal you need to attain that is a juvenile immature view of the world that is not going to help you so he goes on to talk more about this juvenile way of viewing an identity personality and sense of self Going back to the article, he talks about a vivid example of this teenage mentality when he was shopping around for colleges with his two twin daughters. So he writes, after visiting yet another beautiful New England liberal arts college, complete with Olympic level athletic facilities, world-class curricular offerings, and a gourmet dining hall, I asked one of my twins for her initial impressions, and she said, It's obviously a great school, but I don't think I'll apply. Why not? I asked naively. Did you see what the kids in the dining hall were wearing? She replied. Uh, clothes? I offered. Jeans and flip-flops like you, your sister, and all your friends wear? Oh, dad she said, rolling her eyes. Can't you see that they're all totally emo? He goes on to write, (laughs) When I was in high school, we had three groups. Jocks, nerds, and the kids on the penitentiary track. By my daughter's day, the number of categories had burgeoned, and emo referred to kids who had a lot of angst and expressed it through poetry, drama, and art, but weren't as nihilistic or suicidal as the goth kids. <laughs> Obviously, this is a super like um, generalization about groups of people as a sidebar for me, and I think he knows that writing it out. It's just an example. So he goes on to say, And apparently, my daughter could determine, based on the particular jeans and flip-flops that the kids in the dining hall were wearing, that they were emo. She wasn't emo, so this college was out. We may imagine that as adults, and particularly as sophisticated psychotherapists, because this is who he's writing the article for, 
that we've moved beyond this sort of primitive identity formation. But I've often tried an experiment with groups of clinicians that suggests otherwise. First I ask, who here listens to NPR, at least occasionally? And NPR is National Public Radio. It's kind of like a bougie... It's like the New York Times of radio stations. And so he goes on to say, usually about two-thirds of the hands go up in the room. And then I ask, of those of you who listen to NPR, how many of you drive or aspire to drive a Hummer? I don't know if you know what a Hummer is, but go ahead and Google a picture of a Hummer. It's an obnoxious, kind of like, I have to say that I think like kind of like Chad type dudes drive Hummers. (laughs) It's kind of like a douchebag car. So he goes on to say, no hands ever go up. How did I know? Clairvoyance? Clinical acumen? Nope. It's because nobody who listens to NPR would ever want to drive a Hummer. It just doesn't fit, quote, who they are. So even though we don't like to think of ourselves as creating an identity based on something as shallow as patterns of likes and dislikes and habits of pursuing some things while pushing away others, this is precisely what we do. And I love that he points this out because it goes to show that even the most neurotypical person, the highest level of academics in our society who would say that they are no longer stuck in the teenage way of building an identity, we still get sucked into doing this. But I argue that those of us who identify with BPD, that we are probably stuck in an even more juvenile teenage view of what an identity and a sense of self is, that it's so deeply tied to an aesthetic, to the music we listen to, etc., etc. And this was a wake-up call for me. It may be different for you. He goes on to say, what we see through mindfulness practice is that creating a sense of self is actually an impersonal process. As the neuroscientist Wolf Singer famously said, the brain is like an orchestra without a conductor. These impersonal processes, sensation, perception, feeling, intention, unfold moment after moment, relentlessly narrated by thoughts that themselves arise and pass. Our sense of self has other dimensions too. These turn out to be equally insubstantial. Most of us identify with the body as me. Outside the skin is the world, inside is me. But what happens when we eat an apple? At what point in the journey from your hand, to the pulp in your mouth, to gastric mash, to sugar in your blood, does the apple become you? And what about the cellulose or fiber aggregating and getting ready to enter a familiar white porcelain receptacle? Is that you? Is it still the apple? Or is it something else? Most of us pick something else because we don't like to think of feces as either me or my food. Upon examination, our cherished division between me and the rest of the ecosystem in which we reside completely falls apart. As psychotherapists, most of our clients may never practice intensively enough to see clearly how their sense of self is constructed from these elements. But if we therapists can awaken to this reality, it can help us take ourselves less seriously, be less preoccupied with our personal pleasure and pain, and provide a therapeutic attitude that can help our clients do the same. 
What I find fascinating about this article, and I want to read it to you also because of this. This article is written by a psychotherapist for other psychotherapists. And it's obvious in the style of writing. It's very academic and you can just tell he's writing for a specific audience. But what I feel like sometimes is that psychotherapists and therapists in general don't give their clients enough credit. And it's almost as if they feel like we are not evolved enough or able to understand high-level concepts like the one that we're talking about right now, the concept of no self. This example that he gave, which is actually written in the most, it's like the most academic way to write like about eating an apple and pooping it out. (laughs) He literally avoided even saying the word toilet or poop, which I think is so funny. What he's saying is, is we think of ourselves when you're eating an apple, right? You think of your body as you, the apple is not you, right? It's an apple. But when you eat the apple, you chew it up and it's in your body is the apple you now and then when you poop it out is your poop you is it your food it's like these are the questions it makes me laugh because it feels like me and you are sharing a joint together imagine if we were stoned like whoa man is the apple me is my poop me (laughs) but think about it these are the exact kind of questions that philosophers that academics that people consider and it helps you unravel like what even is me is the concept that you've you've been thinking about as you if that doesn't make sense that's a good thing it makes you start questioning things and he says here most of our clients may never practice intensively enough to see how clearly their sense of self is constructed from these elements but those of us as therapists if we awaken to this complex reality we can help take ourselves less seriously and help our clients. But what if you, my amazing listener, you are capable of grasping this. And if you've ever seen a therapist or a psychiatrist and they're just so unbothered, they're so calm, they're so grounded, it's because they've worked through this stuff themselves. This is what they're really trying to help you with when you come to them with your problems. You are capable of grasping these things. So let's keep going in the article. He's now moving into the discussion of non-self in psychotherapy. Seeing how our sense of self is constructed isn't just a topic for abstract philosophy. In Buddhist psychology, awaking to anatta or non-self is central to finding psychological freedom. And my friends, sidebar from molly here psychological freedom is basically freedom from symptoms of bpd freedoms from suffering peace which is what all of us want to find at the end of the day bpd or the symptoms of it make us fucking suffer the creator of dialectical behavior therapy marshall Linehan, was a buddhist zen master She actually uses so many Zen Buddhist practices to inform the creation of DBT. You'll find many of these concepts in DBT. So Marsha Linehan herself, who also had BPD and was in many psychiatric institutions as a young woman herself and found freedom from it, 
I can't say it with certainty, but if she was a Zen master, which I can say for certain, I guarantee you that she focused a lot on this concept of non-self. So there is something here for us as people who identify with BPD. It is very important and finding an awakening to anatta or non-self is central to psychological freedom. He goes on to write, even glimpsing anatta or non-self in our mindfulness practice can have profound implications for how we practice psychotherapy with our clients. What might treatment for our clients look like if there is no coherent self to be found or developed? What if trying to establish a coherent sense of self is in itself a central source of suffering as Buddhist teachings suggest? What does this mean about developing self-esteem, identity, authenticity? Some changes are simple. Instead of asking in therapy, how did that make you feel? We could instead ask, what's happening right now? Instead of helping our client identify his, her, or their authentic self, we could highlight how everything changes moment by moment, including who the client thinks they are. I really think this is important to identify. If we are going to a therapist whose end goal is to help us find a sense of self or a sense of identity or self-esteem, what he's saying here is maybe that's actually keeping us in our suffering. And maybe instead of saying, how did that make you feel? It's taking a stance as we've already talked about on previous episodes of this zoomed out higher awareness, what's happening right now, encouraging you to observe and disidentify and also realize instead of seeing our personalities as something that's fixed, disordered, we realize and observe how everything is constantly changing including from moment to moment who we are. The article continues, a friend of mine who's both a minister and a clinical psychologist is fond of pointing out that polytheism, not monotheism, is the norm historically. The ancient Greeks and Romans had their pantheons of gods, each one representing a different aspect of the human personality. And when he describes Polytheism is the practice of worshiping many gods. Monotheism is like um, Protestant Christianity here in the United States where you just worship one god. Or I think even Judaism is a monotheist religion. So the ancient Greeks and Romans had pantheons and a pantheon is just like many gods. And each of the Greek and Roman gods had and represented a different aspect of the human personality. And in Catholicism is somewhat of a polytheist religion in Christianity. In Catholicism, they worship various saints, each of which may represent a different virtue or an aspect of human nature. Tibetan Buddhists also have a pantheon of bodhisattvas that play similar roles, and Hindus have thousands of gods each with a different personality. Animistic cultures worldwide have spirits representing every imaginable 
human impulse or tendency. Psychotherapeutic traditions mirror this to different degrees, often describing the self as made of different parts. Freud had his ego, id, and superego. Jung had his animus, anima, shadow, and persona. Modern psychoanalysts identify different self-states. Roberto Azagioli's psychosynthesis described multiple sub-personalities, and even more recently, Richard Schwartz developed his therapeutic modality called IFS, or Internal Family Systems, which helps clients identify a pantheon of different internal parts and uses insights from systems treatments to help these parts get along better with one another. And so what he's saying here, and we've talked about many of these different therapeutic modalities on the podcast, hey, if you're a long-term listener, Sigmund Freud is known as basically the daddy of psychotherapy. And he kind of laid the groundwork for a lot. Some of his views are inherently a little bit problematic, but he's a product of his time and he did lay the groundwork for a lot of where we are now. But he really preached about these different parts, the ego, id, and superego. Jung talks about our shadow self, which we've explored on this podcast. And Richard Schwartz, and you may be familiar with IFS, internal family systems. That's a newer form of therapy where it kind of talks about like our internal family. We've even talked about our inner child, our higher self, right? So it's so common now to see ourselves comprised as multiple different parts that are ever changing and not getting over identified with one or the other. So he continues writing and saying, while seeing oneself as made up of many parts, each of which predominates at times, may feel a bit more like having a self than seeing oneself as a fluid organic process. All these models point to something we see in mindfulness practice. If I objectively observe consciousness moment by moment, I discover a continually changing landscape. And the author's name is Ron, so I'm hoping this little sidebar is helpful. He continues writing, The Ron, who appears to be a balanced, knowledgeable professional leading a workshop or treating a client in therapy, is very different from the Ron who's in an argument with his wife or daughter. Shockingly different, in fact. Angry Ron, frightened Ron, greedy Ron, generous Ron, and loving Ron, may all share a common social security number, driver's license, and physical appearance, but that's where the similarity and coherence ends. Without the glue of a narrative about me, these selves are completely different organisms. Mindfulness practice can dissolve this glue with profound implications for therapy. For example, my client Gretchen recently found herself stuck in a depressive funk She'd lost hope again that she'd ever have a meaningful job or relationship and was ruminating about her inadequacies. Highlighting the fluidity of her sense of self helped her gain perspective. How are the thoughts and feelings arising now different from a few weeks ago about your promising date with the architect, I asked. I was just fooling myself back then, she answered. He seemed like a great guy and I got carried away, imagining a great future. Now... I see things a lot more clearly. 
Do you remember that you were struck back then at how negatively you see yourself and the world when you're down? How depressed Gretchen is so different from feeling okay Gretchen? It sounds like depressed Gretchen might be back, I said. I guess so, she replied. It feels like she'll be around forever, but that'll probably change too. I want to take another sidebar here because this part is so incredibly relatable and I want you to see yourself in this part. And it brings me back to one of the questions that we played at the beginning of the episode. The listener who felt like she was never going to find a meaningful relationship. And if you really think about it, think about yourself in all these different parts. Is there an angry part of you, a scared part, a greedy part, a generous part, an optimistic part, a depressed part, an impulsive part? These are all parts of you, but they never have to dominate who you are. And they ebb and flow and come and go. And Ron's talking here about his experience with his client about highlighting how she was feeling fine the week before and now drawing her attention that depressed Gretchen might be back. And she even acknowledges like, okay, I was really wrapped up in this new guy I was dating thinking everything was going to be fixed and now the date didn't go well and depressed Gretchen is back. But disidentifying from her sense of self helped her realize that like none of these feeling states are inherently her and that depressed Gretchen doesn't necessarily stick around for very long. Do you see how helpful that is? How can you carry that in your life now and see yourself in these different parts and see that they ebb and flow? Self-harming, suicidal Molly is not always around. It goes away and happy, peaceful, energetic Molly can be back too. So Ron goes on to write, psychological treatments strive to move clients forward towards health, but this health is determined in large measure by cultural norms. Anthropologists have long noted that Western cultures tend to be more individualistic than Eastern and non-industrialized societies. So it's no accident that Western models of health include being aware of boundaries and one's own individual needs and having a clear identity and sense of self. In fact, before managed clinical care, these were seen as treatment goals. Now, a typical treatment goal in therapy is to reduce self-deprecating thoughts by 27% by next Tuesday. This is in marked contrast to cultures in which identification with nature, family, the tribe, or even ancestral lineages is emphasized and honored. As South African social rights activist Desmond Tutu has said, in many African cultures, if someone asks, how are you? The answer is either we are fine or we are having trouble. Individual well-being outside of the group's experience is inconceivable. One effect of mindfulness practice is to dismantle our modern Western sense of autonomy, yielding several positive, albeit initially disturbing consequences. If I'm identified with certain traits or dispositions as me, I'm going to have trouble when other aspects of my humanity appear. 
For example, if I like to think of myself as generous, hardworking, and intelligent, I'm going to have difficulty when my greedy, lazy, dumb sides show up. Indeed, this is what Jung called our shadow, a split-off element of our personality that isn't necessarily acknowledged as part of our conscious identity. As long as I'm denying or resisting these elements and seeing them as not me, I'll be in constant tension, inclined to project them onto other people and be judgmental when I see them in others. My client Eddie, for instance, had been an angry kid, always in trouble for being too rambunctious. His parents regularly compared him unfavorably to his sister, a model of comportment. Eddie eventually learned not just to hold it together, but to be unusually well-behaved and a super nice guy. His girlfriend was positively smitten with his stability and kindness. Although he tried never to get mad, his anger still cropped up at times, triggered by little things that he thought shouldn't bother him, like a competitive colleague at work or a rude store clerk. In therapy, Eddie worked on simply being with the anger, as a moment-to-moment bodily arousal separate from the thought that I shouldn't be this way. Gradually, he was able to see the anger less as an indication of badness and more as a part of our shared mammalian nature. He came to see that being nice wasn't really who he was either. These different aspects of human nature were just part of the fluid organism called Eddie. I want to ask you to think about this in relation to your life too. Do you constantly reject parts of you? Maybe similar to Ron's client Eddie here, who he gets angry and he thinks of that as being bad. I know that when I was growing up, I was told, you know, like, be a good girl. Like, and if you're angry, that's a bad thing. So, It causes us to disidentify with these things and then we project them onto other people. And this always reminds me of how they say that the things that annoy you most in other people are likely what is actually something you need to work on in yourself. It's a very fascinating thing, which is why I find Carl Jung's concept of the shadow to be so profound and helpful and we've done episodes on it before in previous episodes of the podcast but also this ties into my interview with justin and our other conversations on more recent episodes where we have to just accept that anger sadness frustration excitement joy impulsivity all of these are just different aspects of our makeup as human beings it's all part of the show ron goes on to write one result of embracing anada or no self this concept that we're discussing is recognizing that it's all part of a passing show we can accept every aspect of this organism of ourselves rather than identifying with some elements as me or good and bad while rejecting others As a Zen patriarch put it, the boundary of what we can accept in ourselves is the boundary of our freedom. The alternative to accepting our varied states is dissociation. Whether the mild form that we call having a clear identity and sense of self, or the stronger version in which we completely split off 
unwanted contents, perhaps even into other identities, only to be haunted by them. And it's interesting because one of the listeners who submitted her voicemail talked about her mother struggling with schizophrenia. And it's very commonly known that schizophrenia is actually the core of it is when we split off, when dissociation becomes so extreme that we're splitting off from these different parts of ourselves. And it becomes problematic and maladaptive and it leads to psychotic breaks. And this is why it's so important that we acknowledge these different parts of ourselves, find balance, and allow ourselves to move freely in between them. Ron writes, How far might this extend? To our inner murderer? The inner rapist? Here, it's important to recognize that we're not talking about accepting all behavior, as some behaviors are unwise or destructive, but it is impossible to accept a full range of our impulses, choosing not to act on the harmful ones. Initially, this can be a hard sell in therapy since clients often fear that acknowledging their destructive impulses will lead to them acting on them, but they can be encouraged to consider that we're likelier to act unreflectively on impulses that we don't know well. So the more we can allow our shadow sides into awareness without identifying with them, the less likely we are to enact them. Another advantage to losing the glue of a coherent identity is that it enables us to connect more readily with others, to the extent that we can see both the saint and the sinner in ourselves, we're better to accept others, warts and all. Our judgments about good and bad tend to lighten, and we can more readily feel compassion toward other people when they act in less than perfect ways. My client Eddie wasn't just torturing himself by denying his aggression, it made him judge his younger brother harshly. He thought his brother was hopelessly immature because he got into battles with their parents. As Eddie became more comfortable with his own anger, he began to see that his brother actually had a point. Their parents really could be annoying. I want to reflect a little bit about on this. He's talking about embracing our shadow sides and how acknowledging the darkest thoughts that we have and accepting them as our shadow side is really important. It's much more important to do that than to completely dissociate and push those sides away. A lot of murders and really violent crimes happen when people snap and you hear so often in stories of true crime that they say, oh, I just blacked out and I, and it happened and then someone ends up being a murderer. There is these tendencies of varying kinds of violence and sexual perversion, you may call it, in each and every one of us. It may be different for everyone, but everyone has that shadow side. And it's important to acknowledge that to yourself and realize that just because you have these feelings or urges doesn't mean that you will do them. Acknowledge them, inquire within yourself and self-reflect on them, and also realize that there are many other parts of you too. Ron writes, The Failure of Success I had the privilege several years ago of traveling through African wildlife parks. 
Time and time again, our guides would point out scenes of a dominant male surrounded by a pack of healthy, fertile females. Somewhere nearby were other females, perhaps not at the peak of fertility, and the young kids. Off in the distance were adolescent males honing their skills to compete for the dominant male position. This pattern repeated in a remarkable range of species. These hierarchies in the animal world have huge effects on the individuals concerned. As stress physiologists like Robert Saplotsky at Stanford pointed out, it's particularly bad for your health to be a low-ranking male in a primate troop. By helping us observe rather than identify with our thoughts, mindfulness practice reveals how often we're concerned with our rank in our particular primate group. Other species may stick to a few variables like who's stronger or more fertile looking, but we compare ourselves to one another in a remarkable range of domains. For one person, it's who's smarter. For another, who's richer. For someone else, it's who's more popular. For another, it's who has the better body, the better behaved child or spouse, the better clinical practice, the more developed sense of style, athletic ability, or social graces. The list goes on and on. Among meditators, this gets even really more ridiculous. Who is less self-centered? Who is more awakened? Who makes fewer comparisons to others? When we win in these comparisons, we feel good about ourselves, but only briefly. In our psychological models, we call this process healthy narcissism or self-esteem. The problem is, it's impossible to come out on top consistently. Some of us are always going to land below the median. Trying to feel good about ourselves by enhancing our self-esteem leads to all sorts of folly. As early as 1965, Carolyn Preston and Stanley Harris studied drivers who had serious accidents and compared them with matched controls with good driving records. 90% of both groups rated themselves as more skilled than other drivers, even though the drivers involved in accidents had considerably worse driving records than average. Later, in a 1976 survey by the College Board, 85% of students ranked themselves above the median in their ability to get along well with other people, and 25% even rated themselves in the top 1%. Other research shows that people think they're better looking, nicer, more popular, logical, funny, wise, and intelligent than others. This extraordinarily robust tendency has even earned a name in social psychology. It's called the better-than-average effect. The problem with self-esteem is that in order to feel okay about ourselves, we need to puff ourselves up while putting other people down. This leads to all sorts of prejudices, such as thinking that I or my group is better than you or your group. It also keeps us from looking honestly at our shortcomings and thereby prevents us from addressing them. Just think about the accomplishments that once elevated your self-esteem. Maybe earning your professional degree, getting a job, buying a house. Did you wake up this morning feeling good about yourself because of those achievements? Most of us habituate pretty quickly to our new level and quickly return to feeling inadequate in one way or another. My client, David, was an anxious, episodically dismithic young man with clear goals. And dismithia, by the way, means kind of like feeling like you've lost the purpose of life. 
David had read all the latest books about success and had enthusiastically crafted his strategic objective scrapbook and his vision board. It had pictures of a big suburban house, a luxury car, and a beautiful wife. He intended to acquire all of these things within the next five years, according to his vision board. I suspected that while he may indeed achieve his external goals, he would soon recalibrate and be left feeling inadequate. So we began to explore in therapy how he came to believe that these achievements would bring him happiness and exactly what happens when he doesn't feel like he's winning the game of life. It took a while, but he eventually connected with a sense of traumatic humiliations, including being dominated by an older stepbrother and cheated on by a gorgeous college girlfriend. On top of this, he recalled his father's often repeated disparaging name for the losers of the world. As therapy unfolded, David finally got relief from his anxiety and dysmithia, not by fulfilling the imperatives of his scrapbook and vision board, but by seeing them as attempts to protect himself from the pain of feeling inadequate and noticing the addictive quality of his own narcissistic pursuits of materialism. How winning made him feel good for a few moments, but soon left him needing more. Despite its obvious limitations, most of us persist in trying to bolster our own or our children's self-esteem through pursuing countless goals. But as Joseph Campbell, by the way, he talks about my favorite Joseph Campbell, who is the creator of The Hero's Journey, shout out to my premium subscribers. But as Joseph Campbell famously put it, we often climb the ladder of success only to discover that it's leaning up against the wrong wall. I love this quote so much. It talks about, it's like, yeah, you go after the kid, the white picket fence, the perfect partner, and then you find when you get those things, you still feel like shit because it didn't really get to the core of it which is what these last, I'd say, five or six episodes, I hope you're seeing this all tie together for those of you who listen to the podcast in order and have been tuning in that way. I'm going to read this quote from Joseph Campbell again. We often climb the ladder of success only to discover that it's leaning up against the wrong wall. Ron goes on to write, Mindfulness practice and the awareness of anatta or no-self vividly illustrate the folly of trying to improve or maintain self-esteem. We see repeatedly that what goes up must come down, and we notice that eventually we all succumb to illness and death, making the pursuit of self-esteem a losing proposition. The alternative, which arises naturally out of the awareness of anatta or no self, is self-compassion, Instead of trying to regain our competitive position after a fall or a failure, we acknowledge the painful feeling of disappointment and offer ourselves loving understanding and loving kindness. For example, if my daughter doesn't make the soccer team, instead of reassuring her by saying, but you're better than those other kids in math and you're a great ice skater, I might instead say to her, I was disappointed when I wasn't chosen for a part in the school play. I remember how much it hurt, and I felt bad about myself when it happened. In this way, I'm being with her in her suffering, 
instead of pointing to a compensatory strength or a way to bring her up compared to other people, we compare others and ourselves with acceptance and a reminder of our common humanity, the awareness that we are together in this life of winning and losing, joy and sorrow, gain and loss, life and death, by seeing how our sense of self is constructed, how our quest to enhance self-esteem makes us miserable, and how we're part of a larger whole anyway. We become less concerned with egoistic aims and feel more connected with others. Virtually every school of psychotherapy helps clients identify their own feelings. Most therapists hold authenticity, genuineness, and being true to ourselves among the highest aspirations. But when we glimpse a nada or no self, these aspirations start to lose their importance. In fact, we discover that there are distinct advantages to not having any kind of feelings of our own. As mindfulness practice deepens, we see emotions in greater and greater refinement. Rather than being vitally important, meaningful aspects of ourselves with names like love, anger, fear, longing, we increasingly look like patterns of bodily sensations, perhaps along with visual images accompanied like everything else by the mind's persistent narrative. It's said in Buddhist traditions that with enough practice, we can observe mind moments. These are the briefest experiences of which a person can be conscious. Traditionally, a mind moment is defined as one ten thousandth of the time that it takes a bubble to burst. At this level of refinement, seemingly solid events like my anger, my lust, my sadness, my joy are revealed to be more like a movie, actually made up of many separate frames strung together, producing an illusion of a show. Let's say a friend to whom I've been extraordinarily generous, treats me badly. In an ordinary state of mind, with a coherent and well-developed sense of self, I'd think, I can't believe he did that to me after all I've done for him. And with each repetition of that thought, I get more and more and more angry and review more reasons why I'm bad and he's good. If, in contrast, I've cultivated enough mindfulness to glimpse the concept of a nata, or no self, I might simply notice my back and my neck muscles tensing, my heart and breathing rate increasing, and images of decapitating my former friend dancing across my screen of awareness. It'll all unfold as an impersonal process, waves of psychophysiological arousal accompanied by random images and words. When we experience it in this way, as impersonal bodily events, emotions are so much easier to manage. Also, they don't get reinforced continually by ruminative thoughts, so they tend to pass more quickly. This is such a good sidebar because it goes along with last week's episode and your homework, if you did it, of tracking your cognitive distortions and the thoughts that pop up and how closely you identify with them and how important it is to zoom out. And this allows you to get closer to this concept of no self. 
Think about how often that you're doing things just like Ron described here as if your friend treats you in a way that you perceive as bad. And again, that's just your perception. We're not even thinking about the friend's point of view and getting all worked up into these thought spirals. I can't believe he did that to me. And then ruminating and ruminating. But if you take this higher perspective and just say, I'm going to watch these images and yes i just want to like slap the shit out of my friend i'm acknowledging that shadow side i'm also sad i'm watching those feelings i'm feeling my heart race and just going this is all going to pass and i'm the person that's observing it all you'll see that it passes like a wave ron goes on to say in the context of anata or no self we can tolerate a broader range of feelings with greater intensity than from our habitual framework of selfing, having practiced being with, rather than fixing our itches, aches, pains, and feelings in meditation practice, we develop the capacity to tolerate or even embrace the bodily sensations of strong emotions. Experiencing them as simply states of somatic arousal drains them of their personal narrative meaning. We no longer feel compelled to do something about them. Rather, we can feel them arise and pass like other contents of the body-mind. Of course, this attitude has potential pitfalls. In relationships, identifying communicating the emotions that arise in response to one another are important parts of intimacy. Pretending as though we're experiencing our emotions with awareness of a nada when we actually can't do it experientially becomes just another defensive intellectualized stance or coping mechanism our underlying identification with the emotion will no doubt manifest in some other way as our hurt anger or our fear finding expression in a passive aggressive action in contrast connecting with feelings while genuinely seeing its impersonal nature can allow for deep intimacy We can share our experience with another partner or our person fluidly and openly with less of the shame, righteousness, fear, or clinging that we might otherwise experience if we were identifying with or owning the emotion. So for example, in couples therapy, after a male client I had quote, helped his wife with a computer problem using a tone of voice that was clearly intended to make her feel stupid about technical challenges. A typical selfing response to his wife might be, I can't believe you're being such a jerk. You never talk to the kids like that when they ask for your help. But with a bit more mindfulness and less of a sense of self, the feedback sounds different. I'm trying not to fall into our typical pattern here. When you speak to me like I'm a dumb kid, I get flooded with feelings of being small, stupid, and inadequate. Then the angry part of me comes up with the thought that I don't deserve this. And then I just feel like I want to walk away from you. Is that what you want? I really don't think it is. And I really don't like it. And if her husband were to be able to be especially mindful and respond also from a place of non-self, he might say, I'm sorry. I'm anxious about finishing my presentation for tomorrow, so I guess I reacted to your question like it was an imposition. And maybe because I'm kind of freaked out about how I'll do on the presentation, I sort of tried to boost myself up by putting you down. 
I know it's a bad strategy. I'm really sorry. What would a day be like for you if you weren't so preoccupied with yourself? What would you wear? What would you do? How would you spend your time? Many of the concerns that occupy our waking and sleeping moments would lose their potency. Most of my thoughts and behaviors are designed to increase my pleasant states of mind and decrease my unpleasant ones. As a husband, parent, son, brother, friend, therapist, and colleague, this includes wanting to increase pleasant states of mind and decrease unpleasant ones for a lot of other people as well. In truth, however, a lot of my motivation to help the people I love and work with comes from either wanting to feel that I'm a good person, raising my unstable self-esteem, or wanting to avoid feeling the pain that comes up when I empathetically resonate with another person's suffering. In other words, even when I'm being a good guy, an awful lot of concern with me and myself is actually fueling that process. A radical implication of grasping no self or nada is that we no longer devote our energy so relentlessly to enhancing pleasure and avoiding pain. How weird is that? In the rare moments when I taste this amazing sense of no self, my motivation shifts from scheming and strategizing about how to feel as good as possible and to get validation from other people to opening to whatever may be happening in the moment. This doesn't mean purposefully choosing pain and denying pleasure, but rather being with the pain without trying to fix it, favoring being awake over being comfortable. Surprisingly, this shift can be a tremendous relief. It's as if the mind, worn and weary from endlessly wishing things could be other than they are, finally gets to rest in accepting what is. And when I notice how much of what I stress about all day involves trying to boost my self-esteem or hold on to pleasure and avoid discomfort, the struggle gives way to an inner chuckle about my own insanity. This awareness of the price we pay for self-preoccupation comes most readily when we can see the thought stream for what it is and not identify so much with the contents of our own minds. Combined with seeing that our emotions are just a mix of bodily sensations, words, and images, this realization can lead to surprising fearlessness, even in the face of major life changes. A friend of mine demonstrated the power of glimpsing Anada one day in a restaurant. Lori was a woman in her late 50s who'd been divorced for many years. Then she met George, fell in love, got married. About a year and a half later, George developed a fast-moving cancer and died after a very rapid decline. Lori was naturally heartbroken. As someone who'd engaged in both psychotherapy and meditation for a long time, she was in touch with feelings and had little difficulty connecting with her sadness, frustration, and anger. Because we live on opposite coasts, I hadn't seen Lori for several months after George died. When we finally got together, she said, you know, I hesitate to tell some people this, but sometimes I'm really okay. For example, right now, as I look at you, I'm aware of seeing you in my visual field hearing your voice, and feeling connected with you, as well as noticing the sights, sounds, and smells of the restaurant we're in. And as I talk about George, I feel sensations of sadness arise, and I see images of him. 
but I have a deep awareness that if he hadn't gotten sick and passed away, the only real difference would be that instead of sitting here in the restaurant with you and having the thought, George is dead, I'd be having the thought, George is home in California. It's really just a thought and these sensations of sadness that are different. Consciousness is still unfolding as a series of moments and either way, I'd still be here experiencing you and the restaurant. Along similar lines, my 80-year-old client Donna has been meditating regularly for the past few years. Her oldest son is addicted to alcohol, drugs, and spending money. For years, Donna was tormented by doubt. Where did I go wrong? Was I too indulgent? Did I enable him? Should I have sought help for him when he was younger? Would that change things? Have I been a bad mom? Am I abandoning him? Through mindfulness practice, the whole drama has become less personal for her. I know it sounds weird, she said, but I no longer think of his behavior as a reflection of me. Of course, I want the best for my son, but most of what happens is beyond my control. If I did what I did, given who I was at the time, and I'm doing the best I can now, my life really is just a series of moments. When we relate to each moment, as the impersonal unfolding of changing experience in the field of awareness rather than my joy or my sorrow, we can face difficult moments in our lives with less resistance. There there really is nothing to fear because all that might arise is another moment of comfort or discomfort, pleasure or pain in the present moment. In fact, my wife, Gina Ahrens, has recently been experiencing in her clinical practice with a simple technique that came to her as an insight during a Watsu bodywork session. It reliably helps awaken the freedom that comes from recognizing anatta or our sense of no self. All you have to do is embrace your insignificance. Every time a thought about being respected, disrespected, liked, disliked, valuable or worthless, special or ordinary, beautiful or ugly, enters your mind. Just think, it's only my desire to be significant that's causing suffering again. If I can embrace my insignificance, it's all okay. Consider it this way. Do you know who the King of England was in 1412? I don't either, but in 1412, a lot of people knew. What's to become of all of your achievements and failures? Even if some people remember us for a little while, in a few hundred million years, the earth will be too hot for humans and we'll all be gone. Not to mention the fact that there are a hundred thousand million stars in the Milky Way galaxy alone, which in turn is only about the same number of galaxies in the universe. So as one of 7 billion people alive here today on one tiny planet in a vast universe. Each and every one of us are pretty darn insignificant. Contemplating this each time our narcissism becomes problematic can help us relax our instinct to defend and protect our quote-unquote sense of self. One of my wife's clients lost a high-powered job following a big corporate buyout. After enjoying some time off, he re-entered the job market only to become extremely depressed when he had to settle for a lower status position. 
Exploring his feelings in therapy, he realized how attached he'd become to feeling that he was important. In his old job, everyone needed to consult him and he made every single big decision. Now, he was engaging in his talents again, but he was no longer the star of the show. My wife introduced to him the notion of embracing his insignificance. At first he was put off, it seemed like an emasculating prospect, but as soon as he began to experiment with the idea, he started to engage more with his friends and family, finding meaning in ordinary activities like playing the piano or gardening. When he embraced his insignificance, he found he could enjoy the present moment without so much judgment or fear. He also noticed that he had less stress and he became curious about how he'd gotten so addicted to being the star of the show. Liberating as these insights can be, our minds are quite agile at constructing defenses and intellectual understandings of anada or no self without deeper awakening readily open the door to a big danger, spiritual bypass. Most of us would love to leapfrog over longing, grief, and fear to arrive at this amazing awakened sense of no self. But if we're aware that we first need to be open and process our painful emotions that come with disappointment, loss, death, injury, we can look for paths by which we might taste the liberation that comes from awareness that it's all just a passing show. Mindfulness practice by cultivating awareness of present experience with acceptance increases our capacity to ride the waves of pleasure and pain. As we come to see the reality of anatta, no self, and experience the relief and freedom that this release from our sense of self brings, our orientation toward treatment, recovery, and therapy might shift completely. Maybe it's time now for us to follow the lead of the Buddha and other wisdom traditions and engage in a different view of psychology, allowing our egocentric ways of being fall by the wayside as we come to see that it's not only an illusion, but a remarkably painful way of being and very constraining to live within this sense of identity or sense of self. If we look at society's obsession with mindfulness, but then really look at what mindfulness actually is, we'll come to see directly how our hardwiring and obsession with enhancing our self-esteem or fixation on identity issues to pursue pleasure and avoid pain and seek comfort at all costs and identify with our thoughts and feelings as real and personal. We need to get real about how this actually causes endless, unnecessary suffering. As the 20th century Taoist philosopher Wei Wu Wei said, Why are you unhappy? Because 99.9% of everything you think and everything you do is for yourself, and there isn't one. Mic drop. I hope you can understand 
why I chose to read to you this fucking incredible article and why all of the amazing voicemails submitted by these listeners were so appropriate for this and how I really believe that so many of the quote-unquote traits and symptoms of what is known as borderline personality disorder and so many other disorders out there are because we're overly identified with our sense of self. And I also think that so many of us struggle so deeply with meditation and mindfulness, which is hands down one of the most important and healing practices that we can adopt, is because we don't understand the point of meditation, the point of mindfulness. And this article and this episode is aimed to help you really get to the heart of it. The idea is to zoom out, to disidentify with these feelings, to stop this relentless pursuit of an identity and sense of self and realize that there is no set personality. There is no set sense of self because it's constantly changing and you are the awareness that's watching all of this happen. And if you can start realizing that it's all part of a passing show and ponder your insignificance, it's so incredibly freeing. No one is that worried about you as you are. And that is a liberating thing to realize. What would it be like if you stopped focusing so much on a sense of self, a sense of identity, and you all just accepted it as part of a passing show. This week, if you listened to last week's episode, how can you continue that practice of being mindful of the feelings and sensations that arise and the thought patterns and just observing them? and letting them pass rather than feeling like you have to act on them react on them or get some kind of validation or fill the void what if you could sit with them and observe them and realize that they're not necessarily a part of you how can you realize that there are all different parts of you that arise at different moments this is a highly evolved way of viewing your mental health and improving truly your psychological suffering and disidentifying from all labels, including BPD. So I hope that this was helpful for you. If you truly embody this practice, I believe that you will stop experiencing what is known as BPD identity disturbance because there is no self there is no identity it's all just a passing show and some psychotherapists operating at the highest level likely feel like clients can't understand these high level concepts but I believe we can And I believe they need to be brought to the masses more, which is why I'm taking the time to make this long ass episode to share this with you. And if you're still here by the end of this, you've made it through some seriously deep shit. Most people don't have the patience, nor do they want to actually face these concepts 
it's much easier to just identify strongly with a sense of self and an identity and pursue comfort at all costs and life will make you its bitch guaranteed putting it very bluntly but if you really work at this and you have the bravery to confront the reality of the content of what i've shared with you today you can really make it to the next stage of this recovery journey i don't believe the end goal is cure recovery this magic finish line of you'll always be happy but you will through the process of disidentifying from the self observing your thoughts and riding the waves you will become so resilient you won't experience so much psychological pain you will do and say less things that you regret because you will find the space between your big feelings and your reactions and in turn that will change the trajectory of your life it will change your beliefs and to change your beliefs is the only way you can change your behaviors it's not just dbt or cbt skills if you feel stuck in therapy this is the missing piece so with that thank you for being here with me today over on the premium version of the podcast we are still going through the steps of the hero's journey and the hero's journey is a psychological series of healing that i'm creating it's a guided visualization process that helps you develop a deeper connection to your intuition and i'm of the firm belief that it is a disconnection from our gut feeling and intuition that also contributes to so much of our suffering and it's what keeps us stuck in these self-sabotaging patterns and behaviors so if you'd like to join us over on the premium access version of the podcast you can go to backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access and you'll be able to binge not only i think the first seven or eight episodes of the hero's journey we can really do some like serious meditation and guided visualization i'm putting so much work and research into these episodes the premium subscribers have written me countless emails of how much they've gotten out of it so i hope that you can take what you've learned here take it to the next level by starting the hero's journey process so again go to backfromtheborderline.com and click unlock premium access but if not that's okay too i hope that you've gained so much from our time here today i love you tons and tons and i'll see you right back here next week thanks for tuning in to this episode of back from the borderline if you'd like to receive my monthly written recovery musings via Substack directly to your inbox send me a voicemail join the patreon community or check out my amazon book list recommendations visit backfromtheborderline.com and click to access my link tree